Hello everyone. Hello. Um, my name is Kim G and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from uh, Mount Holly, New Jersey, which is right outside of Philadelphia. And I'm gonna hold this up to make it a little bit easier for me. Um, so just so you kind of know how the weekend's gonna come out, uh, what I basically do is talk for about 50 minutes the top of the hour and then we're going to take a 10 minute break and then 50 minutes again because otherwise you guys will start falling asleep on me and your butts are going to fall asleep so just to kind of get us our legs moving a little bit so tonight since we have two hours um i'm going to speak to probably like 10 of uh eight and then we'll take a little break and then yeah i'm still on jersey time and then from eight from uh eight to nine we'll we'll end with tonight so just guys, you guys know a little bit about me. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1994, um, which you know is a lot, long time, and I've been recovered since uh, and I've been recovered since January 2011. So a little over eight years. So you can see there's some sort of gap in that time period there. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but physically, um, at the age of 23, I was went to the doctor because I wasn't feeling well, and I was having a hard time walking upstairs without having to take a break in between, losing my breath, and I was actually diagnosed morbidly obese. That was my diagnosis. Um, I then decided that I needed to get serious about this bulimia thing that I was taught in college. So I used exercise bulimia specifically, got down to a size 14, and was terrified because my head hadn't changed. And I was terrified because I thought my all my problem was was that I was fat and I was no longer fat anymore and I was felt more insane. So I actually came into OA at a size 14. Um, and then I got down to a size two and I was starting to lose my hair and I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without stopping to, to catch my breath because I was so malnutritioned. Um, so I've been all areas of this disease. None of them are pleasant. Um, so I want to take you to page 151 actually in the beginning of the chapter of vision for you because it kind of tells you what happened to me after 17 years in OA. You know, I'd get some abstinence and then I would pick up and then I would get some abstinence and I could pick up and as the disease was progressing, the lengths of abstinence were decreasing and the lengths of being in the food were increasing. You know, a good year in OA for me was if I was abstinent more than I was an abstinent. So if you go to page 151, it talks about the first paragraph. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, colorful imagination. It means, means release from care, bore, care, boredom, and worry. So this is what normal people experience with food. It's a little escape for them. Um, but that's not what it was for me. It talks here that the heartbreaking obsession that I, one day, one more attempt, one more failure, which is what was happening to me in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. And then it talks about in the next paragraph, King Alcohol, that I was, my whole life became about food. I mean, when I think back, uh, my, even my relatives, like my grandmom is butterscotch candy, my cousins in Virginia were Pop-Tarts, my Aunt Teresa was rice pudding, like I identified everything in my life according to what food happened to be there at the time. And then it talks to the last of that paragraph, last paragraph on that page, it says, now and then a serious drinker, being dry at the moment, says, I don't miss it at all. So these were the times that I would get a little bit of abstinence and I'd walk into a meeting and say, God's removed the obsession. I haven't done anything. I've just, you know, been dieting. Um, feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a Sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything, anything to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. 
So I know for myself, I had six years of abstinence um, when I first came into OA, and I was able to do that by every day saying, tomorrow I'll have a bagel, tomorrow I'll have a bagel, tomorrow I'll have a bagel, because I wanted to get away with it. I, I wasn't willing to know that this was something I was going to have to do the rest of my life. Um, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do, and he will be at the jumping off place, and he will wish for the end. So that's what happened to me a little over eight years ago. So what happened was I was in the middle of a five-year relapse, 17 years in OA, and I broke my ankle. I had um, was in a snowstorm in Jersey, and I have a little 20-pound Jack Russell that took me out. And I looked down, and my foot was facing 180 degrees the wrong way. And I had snapped the bone in half on my outside of my leg and ripped every muscle and tendon in there. And I was at one point in, in bed, and I... The, the worst part was when I would stand up and have the leg hanging. I was on disability for like 11 weeks. <coughs> and I had to go to the bathroom and I'm like, I'm just going to pee in the bed. I, I, can't, I can't get up. I, I'm just going to pee in the bed. And then like 15 minutes later, I'm like, I think I want some spaghetti. And I got up and got into my walker and I walked past my bathroom to get into my kitchen and stood for the eight or nine minutes it takes to boil the, the water for the spaghetti and got it all together because you know in a trough because you know I eat a trough at a time and I got down to the couch and tried to get my leg up high enough so that the pain would start to subside and I just started crying thinking I will do anything for food that I won't do for anything else so and I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober and it was at that moment <coughs> that God interceded because somebody called me um, from my inner group to tell me how excited they were that they saw I had an article in the Lifeline, Kim G. from Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And I told her, I don't know what she's talking about because apparently there was another Kim G. from my hometown that wrote an article. And I hadn't talked to this girl in like three years and she's like, what's going on? And I just started crying and telling her everything that was going on. And she told me about a phone meeting. And I, I come from an intergroup that's pretty, you know, tons of face-to-face -face meetings. I don't need a friggin' phone meeting. But I'm med-bound. And I got on this meeting, and they were talking the big book. And I just thought, oh, my God. I finally know what it means to be a compulsive overeater. Because, see, what I did is I would raise my hand in a meeting. I don't know how you guys do your beginning of your meetings, but in our meetings it says, are there any other compulsive overeaters here beside myself? And we'd raise our hands. And what I realized is that I was raising my hand to, I'm fat, and I don't want to be fat anymore. Or I'm no longer fat, and I'm terrified of getting fat again. So I didn't understand the disease concept. And that was the biggest thing that the big book gave to me, is it told me who I was. And when I truly knew who I was, then I was willing to do the steps in a way I had never done them before. So just to kind of give you an analogy with that, um, with the, the ankle injury, I realized that my ankle injury really kind of mimicked almost my recovery quest. Because see what happened was, like I said, I broke my bone in half 
and I ripped every muscle and tendon. And the doctor explained to me that as bad as the break was, the larger aspect of my injury was these muscles and these tendons. And he said there was a good chance I wasn't going to be able to walk again. And if I did walk, I'd probably have a severe limp. And I don't know if any of you have seen me, I have no limp at all now. But he said that the first thing that had to be done is this bone had to be supported. So kind of like our disease is twofold, right? I have this allergy of the body, which means when I put certain substances in my body, I can't reasonably predict what's going to happen. But the larger aspect of my disease is this mental twist, this, this idea in my head that tells me this time is going to be different. That's the larger aspect of my disease. But the doctor explained to me, first and foremost, I had to have surgery the next day. I had to get screws and plates put in my ankle because that needed to be stable in order for me to address the larger aspect of my injury. It's the same with our disease. I have to be abstinent. I have to be free from all my allergy foods in order to have the mental acumen to attack the larger aspect of my disease, which is this mental twist. I need to be abstinent before I do these steps. The second thing um, was that I was told that it would, <coughs> excuse me, I was told it would take me a, a year to get better. So I would go to the doctor after 30 days and go, why aren't I better? He's like, Kim, I told you it's going to take a year. Okay. And I would go back in another 30 days and go, why aren't I better? And he goes, Kim, I told you it's going to take a year. How many of us get abstinent for 30 days and go, why aren't I better? Okay, well I did have a fourth step. Why aren't I better? There's 12 steps. I'm promised a spiritual awakening at the end of the 12 steps. I'm not promised a spiritual awakening in step two or four or seven. And then the other thing was that I did physical therapy um, three days a week and it was always the same people. And I remember at one time talking to my physical therapist and saying, I'm kind of confused. It seems like some people are getting better and some people aren't. And he kind of giggled and he said, Kim, it's pretty obvious to us that you're doing the exercises between the visits. And it's pretty obvious to us that other people are not. So really, what these, one, these weekends are wonderful. Talking with our sponsor is wonderful. But it's the work we do between our, the times we talk to our sponsor. It's the, what we do between the meetings that we are attending that's going to determine whether we recover or not. So the first thing, I, one of the things I, um, we're going to do is I had a lot of prejudices. Because like I said, I've been in OA for like 17 years. <coughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, to uh, each chapter, I kind of wrote down two of my prejudices. And we're going to look at those prejudices after we learn the chapter and see how they line up with actually what the big book is saying. So in the doctor's opinion, which we're going to go over first, which is on page XXV, that's in the fourth edition. If anyone has the third edition, you're going to need to use algebra. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's A minus three, so it's three pages difference. <coughs> um, but my first prejudice is I can get abstinent to work the steps or I can work the steps in order to get abstinent. My second prejudice is I'm allergic to all food. <laughs> or it's only a behavior. Or I can eat, as, eat all the food I want as long as it's in moderation. So we're going to look what the doctor's opinion tells us about that versus what my prejudices are. So if we go to the doctor's opinion, 
<clears throat> that first paragraph, it says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the suffering of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug, drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. <coughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit about um, who Dr. Silkworth was. So Dr. Silkworth was a neurologist, actually, in the 1930s, and he lost all his money in the stock market crash of 1929. So he got hired at um, this hospital in New York, and it's estimated he worked with over 50,000 alcoholics. So what he started to notice was there are different types of alcoholics. There was a certain type that they would come in from the consequences of their drinking, and he would dry them out, and they would leave the hospital and he would never ever see them again. There was another percentage that they would come in from the consequences of their drinking, <coughs> and they would, um, he would dry them out and maybe they would come back a second time, maybe even a third time. And he would sit them down and say, you know what, it looks to me like when you start drinking, you can't control your drinking. So my suggestion is don't drink and you should be fine. And those people, would go out and he would never see them again. Those are the ones that Nancy Reagan can help. Just say no. <laughs> but there was a certain percentage, he estimated about 10%, that no matter how many times he dried them out and no matter how many times he explained to them the consequences of their drinking, they would return to the hospital over and over and over. And that's what AA is for. AA is not for the people that have consequences of their drinking and can make a decision not to do it. They're not, it's, AA is not for people that have to have a couple lessons, but when the consequences get dire enough, they make a decision to stop drinking. AA is made for those people that have this characteristic, the doctor's opinion is talking about, an allergy to the body and the mental twist. So what we're trying to find out <coughs> in this chapter is, am I part of that 10%? Do I have those two characteristics that are going to be described in here? And we're going to hear different terminology. We're going to hear chron <coughs> sorry, chronic alcoholic, as seriously alcoholic as I was, um, hopeless alcoholic. Those are the terms that are talking about the 10%. These are not the people that maybe get pregnant, have a kid, have to go to a conventional diet program, take off the weight, and they're fine. Or even the people, maybe some of our binge buddies, that maybe go to the all-you-can-eat buffet with us, but they get that diagnosis of diabetes and it scares them enough that they, they change their entire diet and they're fine. We're trying to find out, are we part of that 10%? So first of all, if we go to the next page, which is XXVI, at the end of that first letter, there's two letters from Dr. Silkworth. At the end of that first letter, Bill kind of intercedes a little bit. So in that first paragraph after Dr. Silkworth's name, it says, we, in this statement, he confirms, the doctor confirms, what we, the alcoholics, have suffered alcoholic torture. That's, that's the intersection of allergy to the body, mental twist. Must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. And then at the end of that paragraph, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. Now, when I came in, in the 1990s, <coughs> what was very popular at the time was fat serenity they called it. 
oh, you know, I'm, I, my food is out of control, but you know what? I'm working the spiritual program and I'm feeling better about being fat and everything's okay. Let's not worry about that physical factor. They're saying here, if you are an alcoholic of the type described in this book, we cannot ignore that physical factor. That physical factor is critical in the diagnosis and it's critical in the treatment of it. So let's look at that physical factor for a little, for a couple minutes. So on the next two pages, um, Roman numeral 28, XXVIII. <coughs> the first full paragraph. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that this action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. <coughs> so that word allergy kind of confused me because when I think of allergy, I think of a rash, I think of what, my throat, like you know, coughing, sneezing, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking like, you know, when I made that pasta, like I can sit down and eat enough pasta for a family of 10. How can I be allergic to it? What I didn't realize was the fact that I was eating enough pasta for a family of 10 is a little abnormal. That is my allergic response. So does anybody here have, um, as an alcoholic in AA, anyone here? Okay, so I am not an alcoholic, so if I sat down with any of you guys from AA and we both had five shots of tequila, we'd both get drunk because the normal response to drinking five glasses of tequila is to get drunk. The difference is I'm gonna feel a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous, a little bit tipsy, a little bit out of control, and I do not like that feeling. So I don't want any more alcohol. The alcohol is gonna get charged up excited, woo! Let's fly to Vegas kind of feeling. <laughs> and they're going to want more and more alcohol. So if 9 out of 10 people react like me, and 1 out of 10 people act like the alcohol, react like the alcoholic, it just means they're having an abnormal reaction. I have to tell you, that took the guilt and the shame out of my disease. It's a physical response I'm getting. It's not poor moral character. It's not that I'm weak. Well, my body is different than other people. So I think about when I was with my friends and I was little and we'd have cake and I'd have my piece of cake and I'm sitting there hoping mom says, does anybody want to clean up so I can go in the kitchen and eat all the leftover cake and I'm watching my little friend have half a piece of cake and she's not eating any more of it and she's engaged with all the other little kids and I'm thinking, why don't I have that willpower? What I didn't realize was she doesn't have willpower she actually doesn't want more cake. <laughs> Did you ever hear someone say something's too sweet or too rich? I thought they were lying. I, didn't, I have never had that experience in my life. Because they have that normal response, but my response is normal in me, and therefore I assume that everybody feels the same way. Simple way I heard it explained is that people would look at me and not see what the food is doing to me, and they were wondering why I did it. I knew what the food was doing for me and I couldn't understand why they weren't doing it. So that phenomenon of craving is my allergic response. Now craving in the normal sense, I always think of my dad and my dad will be going, you know, he's going to go see his sister Marianne and go, oh, can't wait to see Marianne, I'm craving her apple pie. Because a year ago when he was at his sister's house, 
He remembers how good it was. That's a normal person's definition of craving. The craving in the context of the doctor's opinion is that charged up, excited, tingly feeling I get with those first couple bites that go, <sighs> and unfortunately it lasts four or five seconds. And then I'm eating more and more and I remember even thinking myself like, why are those first three Oreos good? But when I'm three, four sleeves in, I'm not even tasting it anymore and I'm still shoveling it in. That's because my body is experiencing that, that, that feeling intensifies and it never satisfies. Now you go into AA and they say, get sober. You know exactly what that means. You come into OA and they say, get abstinent. And it's a little different. I heard it described recently that we're in an umbrella fellowship. So everyone in this room has the same exact definition of abstinence. We have to abstain from those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving. But the difference is what creates the phenomenon of craving in me may not create the phenomenon of craving in you. So we have to identify what are those foods. So once we understand what that effect is in us, we have to get down to exactly what that means. Does that make sense? So, so alcohol in any form at all. My favorite one was I was talking to a girl recently, and I've heard this quite a few times, but this idea of recreational sugar. And I'm like, what does that mean? She's like, well, it's in, if it's in a dessert. And I said to her, so you think your body cares whether it's in a Snickers bar or a protein bar? You think it can differentiate? I mean, that's how our disease talks to us, right? So let's go down, let's see what it means. What does it mean to get that effect? So if we go down to that last paragraph on the same page, <coughs> it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from their false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So the effect is what I'm getting. So if it really was, I just like Oreos, then why was I eating food that was stale? Why was I eating food that was burnt? Why was I eating food that was raw? You know, one of the dieting techniques I tried in high school is I cannot stand coconut. In fact, it's funny, the, the um, shampoo here has coconut in it, and when I was washing my hair, I was like, ugh, the smell of it. <laughs> so what I would do is I'd make cookies with coconut, so I wouldn't eat it. And I would still binge on those darn cookies, mm -hmm. because there was something else in that cookie besides the coconut that I would gag my way through the coconut just to get to it. So I heard a brilliant way a, a person was talking about, what are those foods that you're going to barter, you're going to negotiate, and you're going to grieve over? Those are the foods that you need to give up. When you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, what are the foods that you start to get angry because they're running low? <laughs> what are those foods that you don't even care whether they're in the buffet or not? When you go into a grocery store, what are the aisles that you have memorized? And what are the aisles you have no idea what's down that aisle? <laughs> and that helps you start to identify those foods. So it's an effect and it can be elusive. So I use this example all the time. If I watch the movie Ocean's Eleven and I see George Clooney and I'm told he's a good looking guy and I agree he's a good looking guy. But as soon as Brad Pitt comes on that screen, I don't notice anything else. <laughs> Since I was like 13 or 14 years old, blonde hair, blue eye, lanky, 
you know, in fact, I don't watch Brad Pitt movies because I don't pay attention to dialogue. I don't know what's going on. I just, I don't even watch them. <coughs> now, I can't explain it to you, but I go into a room of 30 guys. I know which ones I'm going to get those butterflies on. I feel it immediately. I remember it was like, God, it was almost a year ago now. I'm in my early 50s and I was walking around the corner and I got this feeling and this young, this, this guy came in like a Brad Pitt-like prototype and I was so embarrassed because he had to be like 24 years old. And I'm like, oh my God, he could be my kid. But I, it's a physical reaction that I can't control. So th that's what I think of. I know what that effect feels like in me and I can extrapolate that to those other foods. Does that make sense? And once again, with that prejudice, heard it um, described simply, I cannot get the effect from the steps if I'm still getting the effect from the food. You know, I remember watching a TV show, <coughs> and it was a bunch of people that gave them an open bar, and at some point they said, okay, everybody stop drinking. This is not alcohol, it's just, just average people. They said, how many of you think that you can drive? And like 80% of the people raised their hand. And then they gave them all breathalyzer tests, and like 80% of them failed it. And they were so horrified. Oh my God, I could have hurt somebody, blah, blah, blah. Because they couldn't, they couldn't tell that they, were <coughs> that they were altered. That's the truth with our food. We think, oh, it's only food. I'm fine if I just have a little bit. If I give up most of my binge foods, I'm fine. We don't know what it's like to be clear until all the foods are out of our system. Because what we're feeling when we're eating is our normal. Does that make sense? So that's the allergy part. So let's go to the rest of that paragraph. It says they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few bites. So the restlessness, irritability, discontentment is describing sobriety. See, if you have a food problem, when you're done with the bag of Doritos, your problem is over. If you are a, have, are a compulsive overeater, when that bag of Doritos is empty, your problem is just beginning. So what my personal experience is, is I put the food down, one or two, day one, day two, I'm pretty good, because I still have enough of it running through me. Day three to five, three to seven, I think I'm gonna freaking die. And then, day seven to 14, 17 to 21, I'm going in the meetings again. God's removed the obsession. He hasn't removed squat because I haven't done squat. What I'm feeling is the freedom from the allergy not being triggered. But then I get that 30-day coin, and suddenly I can't take it anymore, and I never get a 60-day coin. Why is that? Because I, if I want the food at day 31, 32, 33, it can't be the allergy anymore. That's the mental twist. 100% the mental twist, the restlessness, the irritability, the discontentment, the uncomfortability of my own skin. So how does this all work together? They're going to talk here. Here's the cycle. After they have succumbed to the desire again. So we're stone cold sober, no allergic substances in us, the desire is the obsession, and I succumb. And the definition I love, I have written in my book, to give way to a superior force because that's exactly how it feels. I have no choice but to pick up. Now, I think we do a real disservice in this fellowship. This is my opinion. I would like to separate that out. But I think we do a real disservice in this fellowship saying, I had a slip. Because a lot of us use that so we can don't have to count our days over. 
and that discounts the seriousness of our disease. So I'm going to give you two examples of some phone calls. One, a girl called me and told me that she had a slip, but her and her sponsor talked about it, and they're just going to keep moving. So I said, okay, well, what is a slip? What happened? She's like, well, I was out to dinner last night with my family, and I had dessert. And I said, okay, so a slip is an accidental fall. Do we agree? She's like, yeah. I said, so you're defining an accidental fall as being in a restaurant, asking for the dessert menu, deciding which dessert to have, ordering it from the waiter, waiting till he brings it back, and picking up the fork. That is succumbing to the desire again. The second phone call I got was a, was a uh, voicemail, and the girl said to me, well, I'm, I, I, I had a slip, I talked to my sponsor about it, so we're gonna, I'm going to continue moving, but I just needed to talk to some people. I was really stressed out yesterday. On the way home, I, you know, I was running late. I was really hungry. I had a whole wheat muffin, but it was whole wheat, so I'm good. So when I called her back, I said, can I tell you what I heard? And she's like, yeah. I said, I heard, hey, you know, my name's Kim. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a gin and tonic girl. It was a really stressful day at work, so I stopped off and had a light beer. And since it was a light beer, I'm going to consider myself sober. And she just started cracking up because she was, oh my God, I'm an AA. Did it sound that stupid? I'm like, yeah, it sounded that stupid. <laughs> so we have to be serious about this disease because the disease is serious about us. So that's the first part. I'm in that, I'm, I am stone cold sober. The obsession comes on and I succumb to the desire again. And, I, and then, then the phenomenon of craving develops. So once again, the phenomenon of craving develops only after we've ingested that food. We go from the well-known stages of a spree, <sighs> emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat again. I swear to God, this time's going to be different Monday morning. I don't know, Monday, Monday meeting's the most popular around here? I know they are in my inner group. You know, beginning of the month, beginning of the year, some of my worst binges, 11.50 to midnight. <laughs> because those starving children in Africa, I, mean, it's not, I don't want to waste that food, so I'm going to start at 12.01. And they said, this is going to happen over and over and over and over unless we have an entire psychic change. There is very little hope of our recovery. So let's put a pin in that for a minute. Let's go to the next page, XXX. <coughs> That fifth paragraph down, it said all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now my keen alcoholic mind sees the word suggest next to abstinence and thinks it's suggested. <laughs> but the entire sentence is the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only way I'm not going to have the, the um, allergic reaction is to not ingest the foods that cause that reaction. What I personally try to do is if I have an allergy to strawberries and I break out in a rash, is I wanted to learn how to eat the strawberries and not break out in the rash. Teach me, Overeaters Anonymous, how to have three Oreos and stop. That's what I wanted you all to teach me. So the, it's entire absence. Now this word 
is what Roseanne, this part of the book is what Roseanne saw after a few years in OA when they were all dieting group support. And she's like, there's something different. We're missing something in OA. Because Roseanne was exposed to GA. Um, to, to form Overeaters Anonymous. So she started attending some Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and they were reading this paragraph. She's like, that's what we're missing. We have to know what we're abstaining from. So the abstinence is where, this, that's how we started with that word abstinence. Now I want to explain this too. Often I'll ask someone what their abstinence is and they'll say to me, well for breakfast I have you know, two ounces of protein, two ounces of starch and a fruit. I'm like, no, 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 that's your food plan. So let's differentiate the two. Abstinence is what do you abstain from? What are those foods, what are those ingredients, and what are those behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving that you have to abstain from to not have that happen? That I can help you with. As a recovered person, I can help you with that. Your food plan are those limits and boundaries around the foods that you do eat. I cannot help you with that. I have no idea what you should eat nutritionally. I remember I, I belonged to a, um, a very structured form of OA in Jersey when I first started and even in, that, even in that state I remember thinking like this girl that's four foot ten is handing this guy that's six foot one her food plan and telling him to eat that. And then I'm like mathematically it doesn't even make sense. So we are not there to tell people what they should eat. We're here, we're here to help people say what they, what they cannot eat according to their, um, <coughs> their, for their abstinence. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a little bit of opinion here, because there is no such thing as an OA nutritionist, and I hear people marketing themselves as that, and they say I have to go to a nutritionist that's OA or understands the 12 steps. I, I personally do not believe it. So I'm saying it's my opinion. So what, what I think needs to happen is if I do this this work with a recovered person and I identify that I'm allergic to broccoli. And I go to a nutritionist and she says, okay, Kim, for your weight, I mean, for your height and for your activity level and your age and your medical conditions, you need to have three servings of vegetables a day. I say, thank you very much, nutritionist. But I know as a compulsive overeater, I can't have one of those portions of vegetables be broccoli. Does that make sense? Because I hear, so, unfortunately, I hear people that my nutritionist says I should have moderate amounts of X, Y, or Z, even though you know you can't have that but my nutritionist says. So we have to know who we are as compulsive overeaters and we have to know who nutritionists have value in helping us with our food plan, but they don't have value in helping us with our, with our abstinence. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the only solution to the allergy is entire abstinence. So let's go back to that page prior and it says we have to have entire psychic change. So the solution to the mental twist is an entire psychic change. And that's what the 12 steps do. Now the unfortunate thing is those 12 steps have a one day shelf life, which is why we have to work them the rest of our life. But the entire psychic change is for the mental twist and the absent, entire absence is for the allergy. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes. Do, do we have an ask it basket, do you know? We didn't do that, do we? Okay, because I mean, I don't. Ha we're a smaller group, so if everyone feels comfortable just asking questions, that's fine too. Um, did you? Uh, I don't know. What did I say? <laughs> okay, so the, so entire abstinence is what treats the allergy, the body, the body, and then the entire psychic change treats the mental twist, which is the mind, and those are the two characteristics of our disease. Say. 
Say it one more time. Entire abstinence is the physical solution to the body and the entire psychic change is the spiritual solution to the mental twist or the mind. So we have a two-fold disease, allergy of the body and mental twist. Entire abstinence is the solution to um, the physical allergy. And once again, if we, if we only have the physical allergy, then we don't need to do those steps. I mean, I, I definitely know friends of mine who, once they open up a bag of Doritos, they can't stop eating. They'll eat the whole bag. And I've asked them what they do about that, and they look at me like cockeyed, like, I don't open up the bag of Doritos. Because they don't have mental twist. I also have a friend that is obsessed, obsessed with chocolate. Has to have chocolate every day. She gets a bag of Hershey Kisses and has one Hershey Kiss a night. No. And I've seen her, she gets that oh, feeling on her face too. And believe it or not, a bag of 30 Hershey Kisses lasts her like 32 days because sometimes she'll forget to have a piece of chocolate. <laughs> but so she has some sort of mental twist, but she doesn't have a physical allergy. It satisfies her. So the problem is we have both. So we have to have both solutions. Negotiate. For example, recreational sugar. But negotiate that one. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, well actually let's, let's go over my, my um, prejudices. So I can get abstinence to work the steps or I can work the steps to get abstinence. So I'm going to show you four places in this chapter where it tells us we have to get abstinence first. So if we go to the bottom of page XXVI, is that backwards or forwards from where we are now? Backwards. backwards. It's on the same page where Dr. Silkworth's signature is. Okay. So the last two lines on that page, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So first they get sober, and then they introduce the spiritual solution. At the bottom of that same, that next page, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. And I think the of course comes in because it's from a doctor who doesn't have his problem. <laughs> I personally don't have a drug addiction. Of course someone who's a heroin addict has to put their heroin down. Of course, makes freaking sense to me. But yet, I bartered and negotiated my food. Then if we go to um, page XXXI, which is the second to last page. And I love this because it, it says, what is the solution? And Dr. XXXI, 31. And Dr. Silkworth can't even explain the solution. He knows it works because he sees the outcome, but he doesn't know how to explain it. So what he does is he gives two examples of his patients. So the first patients, the first paragraph, the first patient, about in the middle of the paragraph says, following the elimination of alcohol, he accepted the plan outlined in this book. And then for the second patient, which is the next paragraph down, it says, following his physical rehabilitation, and if you go to the next page, he became sold on the ideas in this book. 
So they're making it really clear that, um, that, you, that you have to put down the food first. Now my other prejudice is that <coughs> I'm allergic to all food or it's only a behavior. If it really is only a behavior, you're not part of the 10%. We have a third tradition. Everyone is welcome in Overeaters Anonymous. We have a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of hard eaters and moderators in OA. We'll talk about that in the next chapter. But I have to know who I am. I'm part of that 10%. So I need to sponsor, be sponsored by and sponsor people that are part of that 10%. So I'm not saying everyone's, well, my personal opinion, again, if someone is really, they're saying it's only behavior, number one, they're not a compulsive overeater. Or number two, they're a compulsive overeater and relapse. Allergic to all food, it absolutely feels that way. Which is why for me personally, I think it's so important to get down to ingredients. Because when I get down to ingredients, what I realize is it's often not all foods. I just don't eat foods that don't <coughs> include my ingredients. Like I don't think I ever enjoyed a salad until I separated it from my ingredients. I'm like, holy crap, that's what a tomato tastes like? Never knew. Okay. Does that make sense? So what I'm going to ask you guys to do, I see a lot of you have paper and pens, is I want you to write down your top 10 binge foods. Yeah. What, what do you mean it's only a behavior? What does that even mean? Well, some people, they sure. volume is a very common behavior. And some people think as long as they weigh and measure, they can eat anything. Sure. Or a lot of times bulimics say as long as I'm not throwing up. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Got it. 